Everyone knows things are looking bad for Sam Bankman fried the one-time crypto king, and now, as of last Thursday, convict. But on today's episode of On The Merits, we do a deep dive to find out just how bad things really are. Hello, you're listening to On The Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. It's truly staggering just how far Sam Mankin-Fried has fallen in a relatively short period of time. As recently as the middle of last year, he was sitting atop a huge crypto empire as the head of the trading platform FTX. Now, after being convicted last week on seven federal counts of fraud and conspiracy, he's looking at not years, but potentially decades behind bars. We've seen a number of fraud cases involving crypto, but Bankman frieds is by far the largest in terms of dollars, with prosecutors saying he stole money from the customers of FTX, a company that was at one point valued at more than $30 billion, with a B, billion. Today, we're going to get into two angles looking at how this was not your typical white-collar case. Bloomberg Law reporter Daphne Zhang will join us in a little bit to talk about the insurance policies FTX purchased to cover its executives' potential legal costs, and how just last night, actually, Bankman-Fried dropped his lawsuit against an FTX insurer. But first, Matt Boltman and I get into how Bankman-Fried's sentencing might go and whether he should hold out any hope for leniency. I started out by asking Matt to tell me about the man who holds the rest of Bankman-Fried's life in his hands, federal judge Louis A. Kaplan. Judge Kaplan has been around a a long time. He was appointed in the mid-1990s, so he has a lot of experience. He has a reputation as being a judge who is efficient in command of his courtroom, which we saw play out in the Bankman-Fried trial. The, the judge ran a pretty tight ship. When it comes to, to sentencing, there seems to be a general sentiment that the judge can be a harsh sentencer, as compared to some of his colleagues in the, in the Southern District of New York. But evaluating his sentences in, in white-collar cases, he comes across as, as a judge that puts a lot of thought into his sentences, and as he described it, tries to make an individualized determination of each defendant. So we know that there are sentencing guidelines out there that judges can follow, but of course they don't have to follow. Uh, What is Judge Kaplan's record when it comes to abiding by those sentencing guidelines? Does he go higher? Does he go lower? How does he usually operate? Yeah, the short answer is the judge has a lot of discretion here. So you mentioned the, the sentencing guidelines. The guidelines will come up with a recommended range for a prison term based on the seriousness of the crime and other factors. So the judge is required to go through that that exercise and to consider the guidelines, but he's not required to follow it. In fact, Judge Kaplan has been critical of the guidelines in, in white-collar cases in particular and imposed sentences below the recommended range. So last year, for example, he sentenced a crypto trader who was accused of running a Ponzi scheme to three and a half years in prison. The guidelines recommended around five years. It is important, particularly for given the the amount of money involved here. Prosecutors allege this was a multi-billion dollar fraud. And one of the biggest factors in fraud cases is the amount of money that's involved. And that actually is kind of Judge Kaplan's criticism of the guidelines. And, And he's not alone in this, but he's expressed a sentiment that financial loss plays too big of a role in determining the recommended range, which can lead to disproportionate sentence recommendations. Well, I guess that would be another uh, factor that would bode in Bankman-Fried's favor. 
however, one of the biggest factors that works against him is that it sounds like uh, he and Judge Kaplan have clashed uh, quite a bit in the lead up to the trial and during the trial. Yeah, so the judge has, has certainly been frustrated at times, and it goes back several months to when Bankman Fried was out on bail living with his parents in California. Prosecutors then had raised concerns uh, about his use of encrypted apps to contact FTX's U.S. general counsel and suggest they, quote, vet things together. And then things kind of came to a head in, in August when the judge revoked Bankman Fried's bail after he was accused of sharing the private writings of his former girlfriend and Alameda CEO Caroline Ellison with New York Times reporters. But it, but it really seems like, thinking about this in totality, what may damage Bankman Fried the most in terms of the sentencing is the trial itself, where he testified on his own behalf and kind of, you know, didn't seem like he was sort of throwing himself on the mercy of the court. He was really, uh, you know, as one would expect when you're testifying on your own behalf, he was, you know, trying to defend himself. Uh, but it sounds like that may backfire when it comes to sentencing, right? There will be an issue, potentially, if the judge finds that Bankman Fried lied while he was testifying in his own defense. Uh, we saw this a few months ago. The former congressman from Indiana, Stephen Booyer, the judge found that he lied on the stand in his insider trading trial and enhanced his, his prison sentence. And during closing arguments, the prosecutors did say uh, more than once that, that Bankman Fried lied on the stand. So it would be, it'll be worth watching to see if the judge makes a similar conclusion. So the, the sentencing is scheduled for next year. Um, is there anything that Bankman-Fried can do either leading up to the sentencing or at the sentencing that could help him out and maybe, you know, help him get a, a lighter sentence? Or has the die been cast? Has it already, you know, it's already too late? So his lawyers will get a chance to submit a brief, uh, likely making various arguments for leniency. As you, as you suggested, it's, it's probably going to be difficult given the positions that he's taken to this point. But there may be some parallels to Elizabeth Holmes, who was convicted of defrauding Theranos investors after testifying in her own defense. That probably that's also pretty comparable in that it was also a really, really big dollar amount fraud. Yeah. Yeah, in the hundreds of, of millions, I believe. And in her sentencing brief, her lawyers talked about Elizabeth Holmes as a mother. They talked about the charitable work that she did. In general, attempting to paint for the judge a picture of her as a person uh, and highlighting her, her better qualities. You, you may see Bankman Fried's lawyers attempt to do something similar, focusing on kind of the good things that he's done up to this point, highlighting maybe some of his more redeeming qualities and, and argue for, for leniency. So it'll be interesting to see whether they suggest a possible prison term length and then what arguments they make to support it. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. All right, Daphne, let's turn to you and now talk about a case in which uh, Bankman Fried is not the defendant, but is the plaintiff, or I should say was the plaintiff, uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. Tell me about this lawsuit that he filed over directors and officers insurance, or DNO insurance. Before we get into the actual suit, what is DNO insurance uh, and what's it meant to cover? Yeah, so this type of insurance offers protection to a company and its executives against lawsuits and government investigations. It covers um, claims alleging wrongdoings or fraud, usually when the director or company, they are facing claims from investors of like false promises or what the executives did 
that can cause the、uh, stock price to go down, or if、um, potential shareholders allege that there is a fraudulent scheme to gain money from investors. So all these kind of misconducts of a company and directors, this insurance will respond to the legal defense costs and potential settlement. Okay, so DNO insurance covers you know legal fees for their executives. Why would a company want to buy this though? This seems like if an executive knows that their company has DNO insurance, then they know that they can, I guess, commit fraud and have their legal fees paid for. Why would a company want that? Because a company wants protection, and you know there could be a lot of allegations of fraud. We don't know whether it's true or official or not, but a company faces a lot of. You know, like potential allegations from shareholders or third parties alleging fraud, and on the other hand, you know, in recent months or recent years, there have been some controversies or discussions about what does DNO insurance truly cover? Does it just you know like protect directors from fraud? What's the meaning of this? But on the other hand, from a risk management perspective,、uh, a lot of companies, especially public companies, they want to have this kind of insurance. To protect themselves against investors' claims and potential investigations from the SEC or FTC and all that. That's a good point. I I forgot that sometimes、uh, when people are accused of fraud,、uh, those allegations are not correct,、uh, and sometimes they are acquitted or sometimes those charges are dropped. And so in that case, yeah, you would definitely want insurance that would that would cover that. So let's get into Bankman Fried's suit here specifically. What was he arguing, and why was he suing the insurance companies here? Right. So a day before his trial started, that was October second, he sued one of his insurer, Continental Casualty Company, saying the insurance company breached the insurance contract by not paying his legal fees. And what is more interesting, a week later, Dan Friedberg, the formal legal counsel of, of FTX, asked to intervene to the suit. So he wanted to join the suit. He was saying, "What about insurance money for me?" So there are twenty million of DNO insurance for all directors, all former directors of FTX. By October, fifty percent of the twenty million were already wiped out by Bankman-Fried and other directors, while ten other executives received nothing. So I want to just dwell on that. I think that's a really important point to make that the DNO, the FTX's DNO insurance ran out so quickly that you have. Former executives for the company suing, saying, "Hey, you're distributing this to one guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, and not me."、Uh, is am I characterizing this correctly? Is that really kind of what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, the only person who is formally objecting to the insurance company's distribution plan was Dan Friedberg. There are、yeah. some other executives who reserve their rights to object to the insurer's distribution plan in the future. And they were basically saying it's unfair to do it first come first serve, because Bankman-Fried had the, the had the biggest amount of claims and his claims came at the very early point. But let's、uh, get into the latest developments. And when I say latest, I mean very late. In that this happened、uh, late last night.、Uh, what did you discover, Daphne, about this suit? Yeah. So Bankman-Fried voluntarily dismissed his complaint against this insurance company on Monday night. Which is only four days after his conviction from the jury,、uh, which is interesting. Like the insurer was scheduled to respond by November twenty third, and now the case is closed, and basically this whole dispute now will happen behind the doors. And, and he, Bankman Free, didn't give a reason why he was dismissing the or moving to dismiss the suit, did he? 
No, no, we don't know why. But it's a very interesting case because two other insurers have already paid. So there are four insurance companies. The first two, Beasley and QBE, they already paid, and then the third one, Continental, they were paying until around September, and Bankman-Fried was saying they just stopped. That's why Bankman-Fried sued. The last insurer. Decided this is too much to decide to decide how to slice the insurance pie. So back in August, his his insurance company they deposit money to the court, and I think this insurer probably was taking a wait and see approach to see what what evidence can come out out of the trial. Well, I want to really dig deep into what you just said about the wait and see approach uh, because you mentioned this in your story. You spoke to several outside observers that I, I get the sense that the insurance companies think that time is on their side. And maybe last night's developments have proven them right in that the longer they wait, the more time there will be for new details about what happened in FTX to come out. And some of those details could potentially invalidate the claims. We don't know exactly what happened, but attorneys say there's a stronger possibility. It's something similar like that. Because this DNO policy, it has a fraud exclusion. So it says it doesn't cover criminal fraud, but why... The two insurers paid. Why do the insurers have to pay? Because this fraud exclusion doesn't work until there is a non-appealable conviction. So that means the insurer can't deny coverage until there is a conviction from the Supreme Court. Until Bankman-Fried can no longer appeal his conviction. That's why the insurers have to keep paying. But on the other hand, the insurer can deny coverage by by arguing. You lied about your financials on the insurance application. So if they find out evidence about misrepresentation of a company's financials, then they can probably cancel the policy for certain directors who sign their names on the insurance policy.、Uh, okay, finally wrapping things up and taking a big step back. Let's talk not about FTX and SBF,、uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, but you know DNO insurance more broadly. I wonder how. This whole scenario is going to affect the way companies buy DNO policies and insurers write DNO policies.、Uh, from an insurer standpoint, I have to imagine that、uh, the insurers really wish they did some more due diligence on FTX before writing these these policies. Would you agree? I I think the insurers they usually do pretty good due diligence. They vet a company's financial records and balance sheets pretty thoroughly. The collapse of FTX and celebrities endorsing crypto exchanges already made insurers shun crypto.、Uh, they they are adding more crypto exclusions and avoiding co- cover、um, crypto related companies. Did you say crypto exclusions, where they have policies that say this will, you know, will cover you except for your exposure to crypto? Yeah, or any crypto related claims and risks are not covered by the policy, or something like that. Wow. And to be honest, like I think the insurers here. The four insurers, Beasley, QBE, and、uh, CNA, and Hiscox, they were pretty cautious when they issued the policy because it's only twenty million. Twenty million policies is not huge for a huge crypto exchange. That really leads me nicely onto the other side of the coin, which is companies purchasing DNO policies.、Uh, as you mentioned, this didn't provide a lot of、uh, funds, and now there are executives who are all trying to get some of the money from these policies. Do you think that companies may see this and say we need to buy a lot bigger policies because twenty million dollars is going to run out really, really fast? I think it depends on the nature of the companies, crypto companies or companies you know 
doing short-term investments, they probably see a stronger need at this point to get DNO insurance. But the point is whether they can get enough DNO insurance. On the other hand, the general director and officer insurance market is still is a buyer's market at the mo- moment. It's very competitive. The premiums are not, not extremely high compared with a few years ago. But on the other hand, for companies who may be considered as risky, they will have to risk paying higher premiums. Like in FTX case, they pay 10% of premiums. So it's like 500 thousands for every five million of coverage. That's how the insurers protect themselves away from risks. All right. Well, that was Daphne Jong uh, talking about insurance. And before that, Matt Boltman talking about sentencing. Uh, Thank you guys so much. Uh, This was really, really interesting. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor was Andrew Satter. And our executive producer was Josh Block. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.